I didn't have that same passion anymore for, for football. So there was, I knew that that had shifted and then it's okay. Well, how do I turn this into a plan? How do I do this in a way that, you know, can still pay the mortgage and care for my family and keep myself in that type of situation. So there was some planning that went into it. Um, but you know, for me, I really basically dove, dove into it. Welcome to The In Factor, conversations about how great entrepreneurs started, stumbled, and succeeded. I'm Rebecca White, and today's guest is Caleb Quaid. Caleb is the founder of Regenerative Shift, a firm that focuses on assisting businesses and communities with the transition to practices that can improve the environment. He recently worked with Raymond James Stadium in Tampa to plant the first regenerative planting project in North American professional sports with an 1,100-foot living fence of bamboo and native plants. Prior to forming Regenerative Shift in 2021, Caleb spent 12 years working with the NFL, mostly with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers in a senior operations and project management role. Caleb's passion for his work blends into his personal and social life. He and his two sons, Caleb and Atlas, operate a small front yard permaculture community garden from their home in Tampa, where neighbors can pick their own produce to enjoy. I am very excited to learn more about Caleb and his company in today's conversation. Caleb, thank you for joining me today on The In Factor. Thank you so much for having me, Rebecca. Yeah, I'm really excited to talk with you. Um, it, it's really fun because I met you the first time at my grandson's birthday party, and I learned about your business. And I knew as soon as I heard about your business that I really wanted to see if we could get it on the air and share it with more people and kind of share your story. So you've started a company called Regenerative Shift, mm -hmm. and it's an environmental consulting firm, and it focuses on assisting businesses and communities with transitioning to regenerative practices. So tell us a little bit about what that means. What is What do you do every day? Sure. Th thank you. Really appreciate it. Um, yeah. So regenerative shift, it is, it's environmental consulting, working primarily with businesses um, of all sizes. And then, um, you know, as we go, as we get larger, working with municipalities on the idea of environmental regeneration, which is a term that that most people aren't that familiar with in mainstream. On one hand, you have um, Walmart and PepsiCo and General Mills investing literally billions in regenerative agriculture and doing stuff on, on that side of the house, realizing that this is good business. But then on the other hand, you have the rest of the country that is pretty much never heard about it unless you're in a small sect of environmental nerds like like that I'm in. Um, but environmental regeneration, it's it's it goes beyond this, but kind of the entry point is with soil. And so healthy soil is is vital to, you know, healthy soil and water. It's not even an overstatement to say that that would call, cure all of our environmental ills if you have healthy soil and healthy water worldwide. Um, but, you know, if you are managing soil with, you know, Roundup or chemicals or pesticides and things like that, you might have in a handful of soil, you might have absolutely no life whatsoever. Whereas in healthy soil, whether it's managed regeneratively or just left alone, will have more microbes in it than there are people on the planet. Um, and that um, 
if you're producing food, it makes much healthier food. It's wonderful for cleaning water and filtering our natural water cycles, which in this area is really critical and has the added benefit of if you're managing soil for health, you're not putting the chemical fertilizers and things like that that are a big cause of the red tide. So in this area, it's a really important thing to look at how we're managing our soil and our water from that perspective. Um, it is the building block of biodiversity. You know, the little tiny microbes get eaten by bigger things all the way up to eventually grizzly bears walking around. It's the building block of our, our, our ecosystems. And the one that really blew my mind and was a big impetus for when I you know, decided to go into this as a career was healthy soil sequesters tons and tons of carbon. Um, to put it in perspective, there is three times the amount of carbon in the top 18 inches of topsoil worldwide than there is in the atmosphere. And if we were to increase the amount of carbon in the soil by 6% globally, it would offset our global carbon emissions since the Industrial Revolution, make us basically carbon neutral as a planet. And that's easier said than done. There's a lot of things that go into it, but there have been um, some major projects in Ethiopia and Rwanda that have shown you can do it in a desert. Um, we've done it on thousands of properties all over the world. The, the biggest one is in China at a place called the Lowe's Plateau. It's spelled, for anybody who wants to listen, L-O-E-S-S. And China invested um, a bunch of money in over 12 years in the 90s and early 2000s, regenerated um, 35,000 square kilometers of soil, which is equivalent to the size of Belgium. Um, and showed we, you know, that we can do it at a, at a countrywide scale and that this stuff works. And this is getting carbon out of the atmosphere. It's at least as importantly building the ecosystem and protecting the pollinating insects and the habitats that are so vital to, to what we're doing. And um, what, I, what I noticed is, in, you know, this is well known and has been established for, you know, for 50, 60 years. And in some, some arguments, thousands of years, if you go back the way things were done in, with indigenous tribes in agriculture, but it is pretty much completely missing from corporate sustainability plans. And part of my uh, passion is taking this to, to businesses and realizing that, you know, the, you know, some businesses have a sustainability plan and there's a lot that I can do and that other sustainability consultants can help with water efficiency and energy efficiency and that type of stuff, renewable energy. But also let's look at your land and what are you doing with your land and how do we, um, create life through the, the land that you're managing, you know, in case of these airports and stadiums and city of Tampa and some of these larger um, entities really controlling thousands of acres. And how are you managing that land in a way that is creating life and putting carbon back into the soil where it's more useful? Wow. And, and, that, and that's why, when I, why I got so fascinated listening to that. It's just amazing. You know, these are real problems that we're grappling with every day. And people are coming up with lots of different solutions, many of them which possibly won't work or will be very challenging for us as a society to... Um, to implement, you know, giving up some of the things that we've become used to. If we could just rethink the way that we use our soil, we could really solve some of the problems. And that's what fascinated me when we were at um, my grandson's and your your uh, son was there at the party. And so you have two young boys. And I'm sure part of your passion for this is knowing that you want to leave the planet better for them. Uh, but also just solving all these problems and finding this opportunity to work with corporate. It's really fascinating. T tell us a little bit about how you got to this point. Did you, is this something you've always been interested in? You know, did your previous work 
um, kind of lead you here, your education? You know, what got you to this point? Sure. So I, I my parents were, you know, always recycled and, you know, gardened and stuff. So I had it, had it built in a little bit as, as a child. Uh, but really my passion for a long time was football. And I, you know, made this choice when I was going to grad school that the only job I wanted was in the NFL. So I was going to kick and claw and make my way into there and ended up um, first starting with the Florida Gators and then the Miami Dolphins. And then ultimately with the Buccaneers where most of my professional experience and, and growth has been. Um, and it was, it wasn't really environmentally focused. I, you know, I, I cared, but it wasn't really my main, my main focus for much of my time there. I had a, um, a friend who visited me in like 2018 or so. And at the time, um, I was recycling anything that, that, that came in, but, um, that was recyclable. But if something, I wasn't really making consumer choices, even based on, you know, making sure I'm getting something that's recyclable. And I had, um, I used styrofoam coffee mugs every day. And I had in my garage, I had a trash can that I was the only person who used it. And I used it to empty out the styrofoam coffee mug that I, I had at that day of work. And this friend of mine came to visit and he went to throw something in this trash can and just took the lid off. And there's, you know, 70 styrofoam coffee mugs there. And he's like, you know, what's going on here? And you know, it was pretty obvious as soon as he mentioned to me, well, I guess I'll use one of the reusable coffee mugs that I already own. That's not a hard shift. I can can make that change. Um, but somewhere in my core, I think I thought, well, I'm not, I'm just one person. What can I do? And a couple days after that, I had, you know, sitting there and I realized, well, wait a minute. I oversee stadium operations for an NFL team. I oversee facilities. Um, I'm on committees for best practices at a league level. Um, there's actually probably a lot that I can do. I'm not nearly as helpless as for whatever reason I, I thought that I was. And that sparked um, a little bit more of an activism around the topic within the organization. And we made some changes and then COVID came and a lot of single-use styrofoam ended up coming back into play for sanitary purposes right. and stuff like that. But that was really um, – that was kind of the first impetus that got me thinking about it. And then I read a book um, shortly thereafter by uh, a thought leader that I really like named Charles Eisenstein. And the, the book is called The More Beautiful World That Our Hearts Know Is Possible. And it is – it's about – the environment to some degree, but really it's about the stories that we tell ourselves and the story of that, you know, we, the dominant story that we tell ourselves is this story of separation where I'm me and you're you and, um, well, I'm better than you cause I'm me. And even if we can kind of get past that where we're equals cause we're both humans, you know, there's people that are on the other side of the planet that, that we're better than, or at least the rocks and the mosquitoes and these other things, you know, we, we, we're not the atmosphere, we're not the soil. Um, but there's another story that we keep telling ourselves that, and this is actually backed up by a lot of science and by how nature works, is that we're all interconnected. You know, in this room right now, we're we're sharing atoms and molecules, and you know, we're we're fundamentally changed physically from this interaction that we're having, and that that can be scaled at any scale you want to look at it. And so it's this this story that Charles Eisenstein called the story of interbeing, of realizing that it's all interconnected, and when you start seeing things that way. Um, environmental regeneration and a lot of solutions become really obvious and are actually not that challenging once you can get out of the stories that we're telling ourselves. And so that when I first started to adopt that philosophy, I got more and more passionate about it and started listening to all these podcasts. And eventually I realized, you know, that 
on the way to work in the morning on on you know Monday through Friday instead of putting on sports radio I was listening to various environmental podcasts and I'm wondering well why am I getting so tired of being at work and getting burned out oh I'm not my passion has shifted and uh, for better or worse with me I'm going to follow my passion and so I started this plan in place to do something that in this case you know I'm, I'm passionate about but I think also can make a really big difference um, in in our local communities that you know, I think makes a really good business sense to do at this stage for almost everybody. So good chance to make a business out of it too. Right, right. The market is ready for it. It's it's in the conversation. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of the things when I'm in the classroom teaching students and talking with students about how to recognize opportunities, I talk about that. You know, what are the conversations that we're having as a society? Um, it's it's about, you know, it's there's a timing element. Mm-hmm. And I think you recognize that. But there's also the element of passion and is this the right thing for me to do? Is, is this attractive for me? And and can you make money doing this? So, so um, you know, it's a, that's a really good opportunity recognition story that you've just told. And it's really fascinating how that one comment from the, the gentleman that came into your office started this whole trajectory for you. Mm-hmm. And uh, I find that when I, you know, when I'm talking with people about how they recognize their opportunity, that's kind of, you know, that's kind of how it happens. And so you went out and collected all this information and self-educated another you know, strong entrepreneurial traits. Many entrepreneurs have a lot of formal education, which you you do as well, but self-education around something they're really interested in. Mm -hmm. So it's a classic opportunity recognition. Now, one of the big challenges once we get the big idea is putting it into action. So at the time you had a you were fully employed, right? So you had a paycheck coming in, right? And you're you're working uh, like many of us do, and and uh, all of a sudden you've got this this idea, and it's turning into something that's consuming a lot of your time and and your your mental space, and you decide you want to do something about it. What was that transition like, and and how did you go about that? Did you just after one of those drives to work? say i'm i'm done or did this take a while it was in some ways it was it was fairly uh sudden i you know i had this realization that my passion had shifted um you know and it was a i really loved my time with the buccaneers and had had a great time with it but you know i was the operational manager that had to put together some of the COVID plans. And I spent 10 weeks as the only Buccaneers employee at the stadium during the real scary times of COVID. And it's like, it was, it was a hard, a hard year. And then we, we ended up, um, you know, getting Tom Brady and winning the Super Bowl. Yeah. And I got the, you know, I got to go to the Super Bowl with my best friend for 25 years and, and see my home team, you know, my team I work for win the Super Bowl in our home stadium and, you know, get a Super Bowl ring. And it felt like, um, I'm really, you know, I felt really great about that and it felt perfect, but it felt like that was, there was nothing more for me to do. What am I going to stay in this role and, you know, do another season, do more of this stuff. You know, Tom Brady woke up the day after getting his seventh ring and went back to work the next day. He had more Super Bowl rings than any other team on the planet had, and he's motivated to keep going. And, um, I didn't have that same passion anymore for, for football. So there was, I knew that, that had shifted and then it's, okay, well, how do I turn this into a plan? How do I do this in a way that, you know, can still pay the mortgage and care for my family and keep myself in that type of situation? So there was some planning that went into it. Um, but, you know, for me, I really basically dove dove into it. I ended up giving like three or four months notice to the Buccaneers that I was going to be leaving to, to do that transition. And I was 
fortunate to have the savings to give myself a pretty long runway of I don't need to make money right away to to make this work. And so I, you know, finished my time with the Buccaneers and I knew, okay, if I want to be an environmental consultant, I should get some credentials. So I studied for my lead AP exam and passed that like the first month after um, after I was done there and then started to figure out how am I going to take shape with this. And one of the things that like kind of came up, I initially at one point, my company initially was called Quaid Management and I was going to, I'll go get my lead credentials. I have a lot of construction background experience so I can go manage some lead projects and do some stuff that's a little bit more in line that way. And um, to some degree, I do that type of stuff still. But I had a conversation, I was with, actually with the airport and I you know went and met with their sustainability director and was talking through you know, what I wanted to do, what I was passionate about. And like it always does, it ends up talking about regenerative practices. And she says, well, we would never do regenerative agriculture. We're an airport. And that that comment like sat with me. I'm like, well, but yes, but you have 3,300 acres of land and you have this initiative to cut your carbon in half in the next, you know, that time, nine years. And there's some ways that, you, you know, there's get some solar, do some things. There's definitely some ways to reduce that footprint, but also you have 3,300 acres of land that you can do something with and realize that, you know, for me, and I, I'm not the person who coined it, although I think I came up with it without it being influenced was this, you know, you might not do regenerative agriculture, but you could do regenerative land management and looking at the way you're using land to create life and to get carbon out of the atmosphere. And so once I came up with the idea of that, Shortly afterwards, it's, well, we can start making these regenerative shifts in our life. And then the, the idea of the company grew. And then it was so much more than just Quaid management, which is, you know, certainly one, you know, seems like Quaid managing stuff to now this is something that is, you know, can be really more of a conversation about something that I'm passionate about and something that can grow and be much bigger than me. Yeah, I just love it. You know, I sit on the board of a public company here in, in uh, that's headquartered in here in Clearwater, and you know, I we have these conversations about ESG all the mm -hmm. time. And um, if if this can be part of the equation, I think it's I think it's really pretty amazing. How did the how did the airport respond to you? And where did were they your first big break, or where did your first big, because a lot of times the first big customer can make a really big difference. Sure. So the, the airport's not a customer. We had that conversation. They were, um, Melissa over there was was wonderful in giving me some good ideas. And I've had some conversations with them and and I, I do um, expect to do some work with them at some point. My first big break, uh, you know, I, I was fortunate to have relationships at the stadium. And um, the, the big project that we did there actually started with a conversation with their senior vice president of operations. And I just launched my company, just come up with the branding for Regenerative Shift and was having my first conversation with their SVP of operations after I left the, the box and was telling him what I was trying to do. And he said, well, Caleb, I have a purchase order on my desk to buy an aluminum fence. Is there something we could do that's better than that? And what they they were dealing with a curb jumping problem in one of their parking lots, um, where actually it was mostly post game guys who have a little bit of liquid courage and their F three fifties were running over the the, <laughs> the little knee fence that they had there and leaving the parking lot because they didn't want to wait ten minutes to to and go the way on the road they don't want to go or whatever, and so they were going to put in an eight foot aluminum fence and that had a cost to it. Um, and you know has an environmental impact to it. Aluminum is extractive and has a carbon impact as well. And that conversation sparked a conversation about a living fence. 
and what we could do that is solving the same business problem of how do you stop curb jumping. But we were able to do that in February. We planted a 1,100-foot living fence of bamboo and native plants that um, bamboo is the fastest growing plant in the world. And this type is a little bit more less aggressive than some of them, but sequesters more carbon on the planet per acre than any plant in the world. And we were able to put this up. It's a nice, big, intimidating fence that is not getting driven through um, and is getting carbon out of the atmosphere and putting it in the soil. And then through the, the plant we used was shiny wild coffee, which is a nice um, native plant that has uh, flowers that pollinate and berries that feed birds and birds build nests in it. And um, so we're able to solve the same business problem in a way that creates life and gets carbon where it's more useful. Um, and it costs less money than an aluminum fence. So that that project, um, obviously a very prominent client, Raymond James Stadium and the Tampa Sports Authority, um, really you know, made me know I'm still pretty much known as the bamboo fence guy in, in circles that have heard of me. But Fox uh, 13 came out and covered that, um, actually got a lot of uh, news coverage on it. And that was um, certainly helpful for launching my business and getting the discussion with other clients because I think it's it is it does show like there's you know the Tampa Bay Buccaneers the stadium is a leader they're you know a business leader and when they start to realize that these things make business sense that opens the door for those conversations to happen the next level down which which they have been so uh, you know a lot of landfills for example are reclaimed could this work um could this be helpful to like even something that you could plant on top of a landfill cuz a lot of times those are just you know empty pieces of land after they're reclaimed and covered. Yeah. So certainly, um, you know, landfills, I think there's a lot of things that you could do with them, but anywhere that you have land and you have soil, um, using strategic plants that will improve that soil and depending on what your business goal is, but at a minimum, you know, an old landfill that's covered could support a bunch of monarch butterflies that are going through there by having the right type of pollinating plants. Um, and some of them I think do. Um, I know, there, there are projects that are, are are working on, you know, strategic plantings and that. But yes, you you absolutely anywhere you've got soil, um, you can build that soil. So and you make can that put stronger. the soil on top, and as long as you have a certain depth of soil, you could put plants and. Yeah, I'm not. I don't. I don't know exactly what they do after they cover a landfill, but really, you don't even. In most cases, you don't even need to put soil on top. Um, there are, are plants that build soil, um, and you know. So there's um, this is getting a little bit into agriculture, but if you eat a tomato. That tomato is really high in nitrogen, and so is almost all the food you eat. Plants and animals are very high in nitrogen, um, and the atmosphere is majority nitrogen. But most plants, a tomato plant included, um, can can pull nitrogen out of the soil and doesn't have a process of getting the nitrogen out of out of the air. But there are um, many plants um, that are nitrogen fixing that have the ability through their photosynthesis to breathe in. Um, that nitrogen and then deposit that into the soil through their roots. And so they are um, good. And a lot of those are actually called weeds, turns out. And what, what happens um, when you leave nature alone or you can be strategic as, as humans and, inter, and, and get involved in a way that, um, that helps to speed up the process, those weeds will come and create soil and create the conditions that will allow for more complex life to be there. And then you'll watch these cycles over time. I was just up in, uh, in Virginia and they were talking about after a burn, how these little shrubs grow and then the pines grow and the pines live for five or 10 years and they fall over. And then they, 
build the soil and they create these whole fungal networks. And then the oaks grow that live 800 years after that, right? And so nature has these ways of doing that. And certainly we know enough about it that we can be involved in that process to, um, you know, to guide it in the directions that are most useful for whatever our purposes that we have yeah. at the time are. Yeah. I I think I told you that I grew up with a mom who was who was an amateur horticulturalist and and she always loved, you know, she always taught me that you really want to work with what you've got, the environment that you're in. And I actually grew up in the Virginia and West Virginia area. So we're down here in Florida and we've got a lot of sandy mm -hmm. uh we kind of got a sandy um salty climate, especially near the, I'm on the water. Are there things that those of us who live maybe in, in, you know, here at sea level, or maybe you mentioned deserts earlier, can this be done in a lot of different contexts? Yeah. Yeah. It can be done in, I mean, if they can do it in uh, the Ethiopian desert, I think it can work in a lot of contexts. Um, and they did that over, there's a amazing documentary if someone's interested called Regreening the Desert. It's on YouTube, about 40 minutes long. They did it without any added water, and they managed to grow forests in in, in the desert in Rwanda and Ethiopia um, using these types of practice. A lot of it is managing your water flow and managing where it goes on your property. Um, but in terms of just the real low-hanging fruit and easy things, um, in any ecosystem that you're going to have, except maybe like full desert, you're going to have native plants that are in it. And so just as, as, as an example, talking sandy soil, well, there is a sunflower, a little sunflower, it's about the size of a quarter, called the dune sunflower. It's also called the beach sunflower that's native to this area that literally grows in sand dunes. Um, you could take that and put that in the sandiest soil that you can find, and it doesn't, it doesn't need to be watered. It doesn't need to be um, fertilized. It you actually can kill it if you fertilize it because it's, it's used to just living in sand and figuring out how to survive in that type of thing. And so there are, you know, thousands of native plants, some of which are really good for native landscapings and really beautiful and can be incorporated in a lot of these designs um, at, you know, from one, you know, if you have, you're just your front yard and you change nothing about it, except you plant one Florida firebush in the middle of it in six months, you'll see bees buzzing around it and all this stuff. I mean, in my yard has a lot of wildlife in it already, but I just recently planted another one, uh, bought another one of those uh, firebush plants. And I had it in my garage because the hurricane was coming. So I was going to plant it after the hurricane. And I went out one day with the garage open and there were literally bees in my garage doing it, you know, like getting the pollen from this plant before it's even in the ground. So that can be really beneficial to your ecosystems and, and, and to that. I wouldn't recommend putting it in your garage if you don't want bees in there, but, you know, <laughs> can go in the soil. That plant needs nothing once it's in the soil. It can go in, you know maybe get it established, but if you're planting it in somewhat of a rainy season, you never even need to water it once and that will live and will grow and, and will support life for years. So another uh, cost-saving element, it would seem to me, if, if, if you've got a large piece of land, your corporate client's got a large piece of land, this is low-maintenance gardening as well, correct? Absolutely, yeah. So that's one of the things, looking at things with from a business perspective, you know, Typically, what I've found is most companies, if they have a sustainability plan at all, it's very siloed. Typically, some some do it better than others, but you have your director of sustainability and they're managing their $50,000 sustainability budget. And that's great. We need some of that stuff. There's going to be things that cost money, um, you know, that are beautiful to do that, you know, have, have some cost with it. But if you look at, you know, your landscaping budget and you're just your operations budget, 
there's a lot of things you're spending money on that you could probably just by looking at it with a different lens, spend less money on, um, you know, adapted and native plants don't need to be watered. They don't need to be fertilized. They um, need less maintenance. Some of them, you know, you know, it depends on what plants you're getting in. Some of them need to be maintained. Some of them don't need to be maintained. I know you and I, when we met um, before, we talked about perennial peanut, which I think would be, we're sitting on, on a college campus right now, I think should be all over this college campus. Um, it is a ground cover that is nitrogen fixing, so it heals the soil. It is um, grows to about three inches tall and then doesn't grow anymore. It is native, so it doesn't need to be watered, doesn't need to be fertilized. And it's uh, a host plant for certain types of butterflies. And it's a pollinating plant that bees and uh, butterflies and stuff love. And you could plant that, you know, maybe not where you have the quad where everybody's going to lay, because I understand there's nice needs for beautiful grass where you're laying down. But in medians and on campus and in the areas where you don't want people walking, here's something that you don't even, I mean, it weeds will grow up through it. So maybe mow it once a month or once every two months to get the other plants that are growing in, in, in there some, but you don't need to water it every week. And you certainly don't need to have irrigation running through it like you would a St. Augustine or Zoysia grass. Um, and that, that can be right out of your landscaping budget and save you money. And that then you can use for other business needs or to kick up a little more into the sustainability budget for next year. Yeah. And it's such a great PR message, right? Mm. You're a corporation or a college or some other kind of organization, and you can, you can really promote what you're doing, um, you know, for the, for the environment and, and for future generations. So regenerative shift, um, I think it offers five services. Does that include this kind of consulting, helping people, um, you know, design and and look at their budgets, design spaces. So, so what what do what are the services you provide? Yeah, so it really boils down into kind of a holistic look at how your business is running and whatever business challenges your your the business decisions you're making at that time, and how do we put life at the center of that decision. So, with the stadium, we didn't solve all their environmental challenges or all their business challenges with the fence, but we looked at one and we did one that was less expensive, met the business need in a way that that created life. Um, so I, I do have on there different buzzwords um, for different things we do. I, I am LEED certified. And if you're building a building and you want to go through building an environmentally friendly building, I could work on that type of project and manage that type of business situation. Um, from a you know, there's three buckets of in the sustainability world that I mentioned. One is your traditional sustainability, um, which actually there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that businesses just aren't doing that have direct return on investment. I'm working with a, a large company right now. We just did a presentation on solar that has a sub four-year return on investment and will save a millions of dollars over the 25-year life of the system. And you know, yes, that's environmentally more friendly to have a solar system than to you know pay a couple hundred grand a year of electricity. But it's also just an obvious business decision. Where are you going and getting 25, 30% ROI on, on any business decision that you're making? So there's a lot of low hanging fruit that just for whatever reason, you know, I mean, prices have come down. So people don't understand it, but looking at, you know, starting with the low hanging fruit of renewable energy and water efficiency and energy efficiency stuff that will have direct operational savings and really strong ROIs. That's kind of mostly where traditional sustainability is in that space these days and certainly can help with some of that. And then at a high level, there's at a global level, you know, we have this climate crisis that we're dealing with and there are, you know, our strategies to mitigate that 
and strategies to adapt to the changes that may be coming. So from a mitigation standpoint, that's how do you figure out ways to get carbon out of the atmosphere or to stop extinct, you know, lessen the extinctions and things like that that are taking place. My personal favorite strategy is regeneration, um, which has a lot of solutions for that type of stuff. But then on the adaptation side of things, there's also holistically looking at it, you know, there might be some needs for cities or companies to adapt to things. One of my clients is a large Tampa-based construction company. And we had a conversation on, well, let's look at what the construction landscape is going to be over the next 10 years. What regulations are going to be coming in for environmental space? What might, you know, codes might change. And they're very interested in a holistic, let's look at how we're building. Let's look at this from, certainly there's some altruism and some, um, you know, environmental love that that comes with it. But it's also, no, if we want to be in business in 10 years, we probably need to start getting on the forefront of different materials that we can build with, different ways that we're going to brand ourselves and do this stuff. And so what I, I try to do, there's a lot of silos in the environmental space and I'm, you know, I'm not necessarily perfect at it, but try to look at things holistically around your business and how do we, what are the strategies that we can do now in the medium term and in the long term to build this strategy to, um, to help your business grow in a way that's going to position you for what's coming down the line. Yeah. So you work with all of those things. Yeah. It's not just about the landscaping, although that's one of your favorite areas to work with. Correct. Yeah. So I, I would, you know, there are, I don't want to say plenty, there's a few uh, sustainability consultants and different people that are focusing on, you know, commissioning and renewable energy and some of those type of traditional sustainability projects. And I, I can do those, but there's some competition in that space. As of now, I'm the only company that's really focusing on environmental regeneration. So that's, you know, it's my company name. That's sort of my niche and what I think is actually the beautiful stuff to work on. And actually where most of my business actually is, I'm getting hired more for that type of stuff, which is more of a unique service as well. You know, I think that part of the, your challenge is that you're you're early in this space. And so that requires uh, market education. Mm -hmm. What have you learned about that? You know, for, for the, any entrepreneurs who are listening to this and they may be doing the same thing. I know I have some students that are in the blockchain space and, you know, they're doing some things that are, um, that the, that the average, you know, person or business out there may not be thinking about. So what have you learned about how to build a company that that also has to educate the market? Well, you're, you're right. I mean, I would say almost all my conversations, including, uh, you know, at a university level, I got brought in um, to the University of South Florida to give an introduction to regeneration as a talk of their speaker series. It is relatively unknown, um, even in sustainability circles, some of these practices for whatever reason. Um, so most of what I do is, is education and talking things like this podcast to get the word out some. And that that is a really cool opportunity um, because it, it does leave me in a space where I'm, I'm getting some runway to get more knowledgeable and be able to build a business and have some of these projects that are experienced before everybody else catches on to the fact that, yes, there's a business to be made out of you know preventing global warming and stuff. That's good business. Um, but it is also, you know, every conversation is starting with somebody um, and having that conversation pretty much for the first time they've, they've heard of it. And so, I've gotten a lot of my business has come from people who have heard their first podcast on regeneration. One of my clients is um, based on the other side of the United States and found me through a, a LinkedIn search of the word regenerative. 
um, which is, it's kind of crazy to be in that space where there's not too much branding around it. Um, but that, that's a really cool opportunity. The other thing that I would, I'd be certainly with the amount of knowledge that I had on it when I started this business, um, and the need that I, I need to bring in for, you know, one of my projects right now is this 87 acre plot of land that is trying to change the way they're managing their cattle and their, their livestock. I don't have enough knowledge to do that project without some beautiful consultants that I work with. Um, and so, you know, it'd be hard to carve out, Hey, I'm, I'm regenerative shift. And that's the only type of thing I'm working on at the stage of market development. And, and also frankly, the stage of knowledge that I have on some of these things. Um, but what, what I have is, um, you know, there is this market of sustainability consulting. And that that's out there. And I have some experience in that. I have some credentials in that. And there are construction projects that are being built that have sustainability focus. And then there's also other construction projects that don't have a sustainability focus that I have a lot of experience in that fortunately, those types of jobs I can get and they can pay the bills while I build something. Um, and so I've been able to bridge the gap um, as I learn more and as the market starts to catch on to these things with some stuff that um, is some skill set that I have that if I didn't have that skill set, it might might be hard to, sure. to operate this in this space. Yeah, so you, you're bootstrapping it really with with uh, with some of the some of the work that the market is familiar with, and hopefully once they start working with you, then you can start talking about regeneration and build that brand. And uh, I just think it's really exciting what you're doing. And I know that it's not easy. You've been building, you've been, you started this company last year. Mm -hmm. And so um, you're early in this. What, what, what's some, you know, what's been some of the bigger challenges that you've had to deal with as a startup and especially in a space like this? Yeah, for, uh, really, for the most part, I've really enjoyed the process and I am at a stage of life where I, I like the waves and I like a little bit of the uncertainty for the most part. Um, I say that, but my my biggest challenge that I've had is um, my, you know, my parents from a very young age, when I got, you know, 50 bucks for Christmas, taught me to somehow I was thinking I was making the decision to spend five of it and put 45 in the bank. And I thought that was my decision when I was six years old. Um, you know, but I've always been a saver. I've always known that, you know, you live within your means or, or less than your means every month. Like you figure out what you make that month and you have to live on lower than that. I took that, you know, my first job in the NFL was minimum wage with the Miami Dolphins. And, you know, I was living in section eight housing and I was, um, you know, living very, very meagerly. But, you know, managed to spend less money than I was earning, you know, during that time on, on that thing. And that just has always been, well, you can't spend more money than you make. You just can't do it, right? So this, I, you know, financially in a much better position than I was when I was an intern with the Dolphins and planned this and, and had the runway and had this idea of this is how long I can go. This is how much of my savings I'm willing to commit to this before I say this doesn't work, et cetera. Um, but psychologically, it's been different. Um, and now I'm past that stage of my business. It's been seven or eight months that I've made more money each month than I've spent. But in the early going, you know, first half year plus of this business, I wasn't. And so to watch psychologically this spreadsheet that I've maintained for the last 25 years that keeps track of every dollar that I spend and all my net assets, um, to see that go down every month, even though it was planned, psychologically was, was challenging for me. And then something that I've been dealing with along the same lines in the entrepreneurial space. So now, you know, the last seven, eight months, I've had this project that's paying the bills and everything's been going really well. And that goes for a few more months. Um, 
you know, that's different than a salary. That's different than having job security and knowing, hey, you're going to get this paycheck in two weeks. So when you plan a vacation, you know, it's paid vacation and you're going to have this paid, you know, you're going to come back. And as long as you do a good job, which I've always been, you know, able to do, you have job security and you're going to be able to get that money. Um, now there's, you know, this project that's taking up a lot of my time. Well, what am I doing for this next project? And even if I have that all figured out and I've got this runway, well, how long can I really, you know, I don't have two years that I can't make money on this business. So I really don't know if I want to spend that money on the vacation right now. It's been a little bit of a different mindset shift of how to manage my money in a way that doesn't fall into a scarcity mindset, um, which is, a, you know, an area of meditation and growth on like realizing that, no, this business is thriving and I'm, you know, making double my, my expenses this month. And that's awesome. And still getting caught into, yeah, but what if in four months I don't? Like that mindset's been a little bit of an adjustment for me right. from as an entrepreneur. Yeah, there's a fear. There's yeah. a fear in there. That and and uh, you know, I write about that in my book uh, that uh, that I recently published. That, and there's a whole chapter on fear of failure uh, and how people with an entrepreneurial mindset handle that. And it's it's something that we all have to come o uh, overcome, I think, if we want to do this thing because it's real. It's very real and it's scary, but uh, I just love what you're doing, Caleb. And I think it's, you know, I think you've got a, a real opportunity here. It makes a lot of sense and it's really exciting. And I, I'm, I'm just really excited that we are able to share your story here on the InFactor. And I'm really looking forward to hearing more and more about how your company uh, is growing and succeeding. You know, optimism is kind of the other mindset that we have to mm -hmm. have. So a belief that the future is going to be going to be bright. And I just see, you know, somebody who's worked with a lot of entrepreneurs over the year, I see a lot of promise in this. So, and a lot of promise in you. So congratulations. Um, I could talk all day. I think about this. It's really fascinating to me, but I, I know that uh, you've got a lot of work to do out there. So I want to, I want to kind of wrap this up with the question that I, I ask all my guests. And that is what would be the one piece of advice that you would give to our audience, knowing that many of them are entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs? Well, so if I can, I'll give kind of two things. One, from an entrepreneurship standpoint, I think, um, you know, start as soon as you can. Um, and, and, you know, but, you know, when your expenses are low, like by the time you have a mortgage and you have kids with daycare and stuff like that, there's, um, you know, it, you have to make a certain amount of money in order to to cover those things, and you know that that can add to the fear. If you could live lean and start when your expenses are low, and realize that a dollar saved is a dollar you don't have to earn, and that's an important part of of this process for me, for sure. Um, but I, I, you know, I just dive into it and and start. You know, before you, before you have the mortgage, might be a good time to to do that. Um, and then, kind of my overall thing is, you know. What I, I define regeneration as, um, I borrowed this from Paul Hawken, who literally wrote the book um, called Regeneration, um, who I spent some time studying with. Uh, but it's regeneration is putting life at the center of decision making. And you can substitute beauty or health or love, you know, but you know, when you're when you're making a decision, you know, so for the listeners that are out there that are thinking about in the short term, medium term, long term, whether it's a major decision on how to start their business or or you know, to live their life, or it's a really minor decision, you know, how, how can you, you know, think about that in a way that factors life into that decision and puts life at the center of that decision-making process? Um, that's been a philosophy that has 
guided my whole journey with Regenerative Shift and is much more than a business for me. It's it's how I'm living and how I'm doing things as best I can. And that has, I found a lot of joy and beauty in that type of philosophy and, and question to ask myself. Uh, that's that's beautiful, and I think you know, you're you're. I think there's a lot that we can all do, and and regeneration is something that I know you're working mostly with corporations, but each of us on an individual basis, if we have that kind of philosophy, um, it brings life rather than destroys life. Absolutely. So, I love I love it. So. Thank you again for joining me. Where can our listeners find uh, find out about Regenerative Shift um, or find out more about you or connect with you? Sure. I'm on uh, Regenerative Shift is on LinkedIn and Facebook from social media. That's where I'm most active with updates. I just posted today a beautiful project that um, that we just got in the ground. At, we planted uh, vegetable gardens at construction sites um, last week, which nice. is such a fun, fun, uh, fun project. Um, but anyway, that's where you can find most of that information. I have a website that's got a lot of resources and education and certainly ways to contact me through. Um, really good place to go if you want to find, you know, hey, what is regeneration? There's literally a link on there that says new to regeneration, start here, and it will walk you through that process and then bury you with as deep down the rabbit hole as you want to go on my, my site and then all these links out to podcasts and other websites to, to look at. Um, and then I'm, I'm on LinkedIn as well. If someone wants to connect with me personally, Caleb Quaid on LinkedIn would love to connect and have some conversations. Thank you, Caleb. Thank you. Appreciate it so much. If you enjoyed this episode and would like to learn more about entrepreneurship, we would love it if you hit that subscribe button. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of InFactor. Factor.